Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, Sonny Jane. He's the founder and CEO of a company called uh, Flore. It's F-L-O-R-E.com. So we're going to talk about his company and his background. And uh, we also want to discuss intermittent fasting and how it affects the microbiome. Because uh, intermittent fasting is uh, all the rage nowadays. But I don't know if anyone really has a grasp on how it changes all the microbiome. So welcome, Sonny. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you, Richard, for having me. I'm excited to talk about the topic and and tell people more about Flory, the world's only precision probiotic that is based off of your trillions of microbes that are living in the microbiome in your gut and how we customize solutions and use e-health technology to do a great customer experience as well. Excellent. Well, if you don't mind, just tell us about your background and how you came to be interested in the microbiome and you know, founding and running a company that works on it. Sure, happy to. It's it's really kind of just a series of events that led me to wanting to start my own company and try to help others uh, navigate this very complex world of gut microbiome health as it relates to their overall health. I was looking for a solution for my son. My son was just born in 2016 and he was having gut health issues and I took him to the doctor and the doctor said, maybe too young for any sort of therapeutic intervention have you tried a probiotic? And at that time, I didn't know too much about probiotics. 2016, I think the industry was maybe a a couple hundred million dollars market size. And now it's grown and and blossomed into a couple billion dollar market size here in the United States, in the United States as a supplements category. But I went, nonetheless, I went to and did my work and I went to the natural food store, got to the uh, probiotic aisle and I found this myriad of choices to choose from. I call it the probiotic wall of confusion or paralysis because you're just left standing there looking at these bottles and and perhaps you've been there, Richard. Have you seen that aisle? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, like what I tend to do, well, what I used to tend to do is I would look for the ones that had the highest number of different microbes and the highest number of CFUs, you know, like 40 billion. Oh, look, this one's 60 billion. This is 80 billion. Go with that. And then I learned refrigerated is possibly better than non-refrigerated, you know, so I went through all that, but still some of them work, some of them don't. You just, you never know. Like the average consumer never knows, I, I believe. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that is a very rational approach to selecting the probiotics. You would think that higher level concentration is going to get you more into the intestinal tract. And what we found is that's not always the case. Um, yes, it's not. It's kind of like the cell phone, right? We came out with these like megapixels and it was the megapixel race. And we just thought the biggest megapixel is the best photo. But actually the lens and, and the quality of the lens really dictated the resolution and, and how crisply you can see things. And that's kind of how we view the microbiome data, help, helping us understand exactly what probiotic strains uh, an individual may need. And it may not be be the highest concentration and 
may be dosed different depending on the individual and where their gut microbiome is. That's why you so. see uh, sometimes you, you try one or your friend tries one and, and they're like, man, I got to tell you, Richard, this probiotic is amazing. It's helped me. It's changed my life. Oh, our, our gut microbiomes are only 90% are are ninety percent different, and so only ten percent similar. And so one out of ten people are going to go to the over the counter one size fits all and have it be successful, and they're going to tell their friends, and that's enough to build a market around that product. But then you go try it, and you're like, man, I don't know what that guy was talking about. This thing hasn't been doing anything for me, and that is sort of the cascade of events that has led me to wanting to craft precision solutions, really be targeted. Our efficacies are at 87% or higher per customer, and this enables us to be competitive. Well, in speaking to a bunch of microbiome scientists, it seems like a lot of them have said that the microbes that are selected for these probiotics, first of all, how are they selected? You know, you, you're like, I just gave you like an insight or a window into me, the, the non-knowing customer, how I would select them. But how do the companies that give the probiotics and put them on the market, how do they select them? But yeah, we, the reason I ask is that maybe not your company, but a lot of them, uh, the microbes that they are able to culture are not necessarily in their gut. And therefore, they're not going to take up residence no matter what you do, but they're transitory. And perhaps in the transit, they help us, you know, maybe for the food that is ingested with or around the time of the, of the probiotic. But I know I'm asking a couple of questions here, but yeah, if you could collaborate. Yeah, I mean, we hope that people are putting rational scientific principles into the combination of microbes to select. But as we did more diligence on the landscape of all these different products and offerings, we found that it's less so. Some of the key brands definitely do that. There's lots of scientific rigor put behind it. There's clinical trials put behind it. So you can see those on the shelf, you know, brands like Culturel on the on the shelf are going to put a lot of scientific work and effort behind it. But other brands may not have the budgets to enable that, right? And and so then they rely on their manufacturers of where they're getting the supply of probiotics to have some of that science to validate how they put it together. But then there's sort of this third tier that we found, which is people just find a single probiotic and they look at the price of that probiotic per kilogram, and then they add maybe 2 billion CFU of that key clinical probiotic that has research behind it. And then they fill in another 78 billion CFUs to get you to 80 billion CFUs with a bunch of other strains. And so you end up with like 35 strains. And yet there is one clinical keystone, we call it keystone straight in the mix, but they're using it sparingly to save costs and and then mixing in a bunch of other probiotics just to make it look more robust. So there is a little bit of, of that third tier level of probiotics being put on the marketplace. And that's something we really, really try to avoid. We're selecting only probiotic strains that are, you know, have clinical data supporting the use and indication of them. And we've essentially curated over 115 ingredients in our repository that we think meet this sort of threshold of scientific rigor, rigor that's needed inside of human studies to actually take them for, for our own benefit. So if these uh, microbes, they're selected, you know, who knows how, do they ever take up residence in our gut? Or is it just the action of consuming them temporarily, them being in our digestive tract will help, but then they're, they're quickly either destroyed, consumed, and or pooped out or peed out? Is that the mechanism of action or what is it when someone takes a probiotic? Yeah. So we originally thought, you know, taking residence was a good thing. I, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Really what we 
want to do is to modulate the gut microbes that are already living inside of our intestinal tract. There's over 500 or so species that are that are pretty uh, abundant within each individual. And we can test and analyze and report out what those are per an individual. And those are found and, and sort of resident or what they call colonized microbes of your gut. And you want to you want to influence the growth and stimulate the growth of those. I don't know if today we want to take probiotics off the shelf that would then come in and engraft and colonize long term because that can have serious health implications. And so it's almost better to have something transient where you're taking it, trying it. And if it's working for you, you can continue to take it. And if it's not, you can go off of it. And it's sort of no harm, no foul kind of situation where it's not going to create a long term negative impact to your gut. And that's why, you know, probiotics on the shelf don't need to be uh, as heavily regulated because of that transient nature and the washout period of a couple of weeks. So you don't necessarily want them to colonize, in my opinion, yet until we sort of figure out all the keystone strains that everybody needs to have. And until then, we we need to test, we need to analyze our gut microbiomes to see what we're missing and what we can shift. And how do we how do we modulate that ecosystem of, of microbes? It's like a giant Petri dish and you want to you want to skew it towards the healthy gut microbes. Well, what, what are the probiotics doing that, according to your experimentation, your observations? How are they having an effect when they're consumed? So they're, they're getting into the intestinal tract, both the you know small intestine and the colon. And if they survive, the stomach acid, which is one thing that we put a lot of science into to make sure that that, that capsule doesn't open at the low pHs of about two or less in the stomach acid. But as a pH increases to five and a half where your small intestine is, then that, that outer capsule begins to dissolve. And so you get the full value of the probiotic or the CFU concentration. And so what it does is if it's packed with its it's food, it's prebiotics, what we call a symbiotic, a probiotic and a prebiotic combined. If it's packed together with that, now it has the nutrients to kind of survive and start to try to grow and replicate. So it's not going to bind with receptors and hang on, but at least it can exist as uh, an active cell mass inside of the intestinal tract and be living. And that's the definition of a probiotic in that it can actually be a living cell and release something positive and benefit uh, of benefit into the environment. So this is what they call a postbiotic. So your probiotic is actually a living cell that is releasing beneficial metabolites into the intestinal tract or what they call postbiotic. And some of those things can be short chain fatty acids, some can be vitamins. So it could be things like butyrate, procreinate, and it, some can be as simple as a, as a vitamin it's releasing, or it's activating a fermentation pathway on some nutrients that you're eating to create the metabolites that are beneficial for you. So there's these are sort of the mechanisms that probiotics provide inside the intestinal tract, not to mention, you know, helping our digestive power, you know, as we as we eat and, and take in other nutrients. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So is it because, let's say someone doesn't eat a diet that would provide the necessary nutrients for the 
the right bacteria to activate all these pathways or, you know, make butyrate or whatever it is. Is that what's happening? Is Let's say someone's diet is lacking, therefore they don't have the bacteria to do certain functions. So they take the probiotic, now all of a sudden they can perform those functions, at least for a few hour window during digestion. That's a really good way to think about it. it. It's something called diversity, where you're looking at the functions of microbes that you have. And if you have all those complete functions and having a greater number of diversity gives you more functions, essentially. And if you can have more functions of the, of the gut microbes, then that you can create more healthy benefits for yourself, the host. But you know what? One thing I always kind of challenge people on a little bit is what if we are, our biology is actually our microbiology and what if this whole precision nutrition industry and thought process was not really to feed the most identical cell in our human body, our human cells, which have the exact same DNA all across every single human cell in our body, but it's to think about what's so unique in our bodies. It's the microbiome and the DNAs of, of the microbes of our cells. That's up to 90% unique between individuals. And if we if we start to think about feeding those organisms as precision medicine and precision nutrition and and why we eat the food we do, it's essentially to feed the microphysiology of the microbiota of our gut, which in turn then benefits us. That's that's some that's the life and perspective we'd love for people to begin to understand. It's really not even for our own human nutrition. It's for the nutrition of our our microbiology. I see our microbiome as an extension of our sensory apparatus, as an extension of our uh, I guess biological ability. Again, they can digest things we can't. They can produce compounds that we can't. So they're a necessary part of us as a holobiont, you know, as a, a complex organism. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We like that word holobiont and you know how how it works together with us. You know, we I've worked on the Human Genome Project. I worked at Illumina for seven seven years and and got to be the first clinician to sequence the human genome in a in a clinical lab. But today, human genome analysis, as far as precision nutrition is concerned, is very limited and uh, not really widely used. And so that's why we view microbiome analysis, the analysis of the DNA elements of the microbes of your gut as really where precision nutrition has begun to see some real momentum and where if you can solve for the deficiencies of the microbiome, you're benefiting your human symptoms ranges or or optimizing your human self through their peak nutrition. What about adding in select phages? Could that be considered some other type of biotic? You know, not pre, not pro, not sin, but I don't know what you'd call it. But I don't know how the you know, the regulatory bodies will look at it. But I would think perhaps you can modulate things even more with, again, the addition of certain phages. Yeah, ph phages are so interesting and are becoming a topic of discussion on, on you know, regulations and how you can bring them to market. But essentially, a phage carries these nucleotides within them, these RNA and DNA molecules within them. And their job is to come and bind these microbes, bind onto the microbes, and then essentially transduce or deliver the DNA or RNA that's within them into the cells of these bacteria or yeast or fungi in hopes of incorporating those DNA elements into the genomes of the microbes and essentially adding more functions. So it's it can be like a shortcut. It's almost like a software update where you have your microbiome, you have all the functions, and now you're looking to update the, the software with some new code and you bring it in through phages. And phages can be that new code to give you more function. And so we think phages have an interesting 
part to play in managing the gut microbiome. And maybe the beginnings of that are being seen more on the clinical side where you could do a phage-based therapy to potentially knock out or take down nefarious microbes of the gut like Colpsella pneumoniae or C. difficile or E. coli. That's kind of where I think phage therapy is kind of coming to first come to market. But after that, you could see that become more expensive and, and look at, you know, how do we how do we create not knockout almost antibiotic like a, a phages, but how do we create phages that are delivering functions and beneficial things like increasing butyrate levels and in, in genes like that? Dr. Maurice Saline, is there an ideal protocol for someone that's on antibiotics? Should they take certain probiotics during antibiotics um, because it's wiping out, I mean, supposedly everything? Has anyone studied this? I think this would be a very, very important thing is how do you, again, use probiotic, prebiotics, et cetera, to improve your you know, your health during a course of antibiotics. You're absolutely right, Richard. It is super important to be mindful of that when you take antibiotics. Richard, have you taken antibiotics recently or, or about a antibiotics for any period of time? Oh, I have, yeah. My wife, you know, she has the, the dental issues, so she had to take them. And yeah, it wreaks havoc. You know, it's just, and I don't know what's ideal. Again, some people say wait and don't take the probiotics during the, the time you have the antibiotics. Some people say have it during it. Some people say I have fermented foods instead, but what is a, a protocol maybe that you've tested or you think would be workable? Yeah, so we work with a lot of clinicians on our Flory Clinical side of the business, and you can learn more about that on floryclinical.com. That's where clinicians are offering the Flory GI Serenity product, where we think somebody that's on antibiotics might be a better fit for that type of solution, where you have that medical intervention and guidance from a practitioner. But what we've learned from the practitioners is that they do like to monitor post and pre antibiotic use. So knowing what your baseline is, is really important of your microbiome before you begin an antibiotic. So before you, you know, get into trouble and need to take an antibiotic from some sort of, you know, food, diet, surgery, or intervention, it's always good to have had a baseline so you know what your your individual quote unquote healthy into microbiome kind of looks like where you were feeling okay or relatively okay. And then, you know, when you do take an antibiotic, could be months from now or years from now, when you do take that antibiotic, you know, it's going to wipe out both the bad and good microbes of the gut. So it's going to ma- wipe out your commensal or your beneficial organisms, but it will also tackle the, the key thing that you're taking the antibiotic for, which are some of these nefarious enterobacteria and other bad microbes of the gut. So it'll knock that down. And now it's the it's the recovery period that you're talking about. What's the protocol around? Okay, now you've, you've cleared the playing field and what's going to grow back the fastest? It's generally the things with the fastest doubling time, which are these organisms like Shigella, Salmonella, E. coli. They have the fastest rate of doubling inside the intestinal tract. So to prohibit those organisms from growing, we need to have a counter of something else taking up the nutrient supply. And that's where people begin to recommend fermented food because bifidobacterium and other organisms of the gut like to feed off of fermented metabolites, and you can increase the levels of bifidobacterium, which will then fight against the increasing levels of these E. coli salmonellas and shigella. So that's a generally good way to look at it. We would include not only fermented food, but I would say fibers would also be a good idea and potentially limiting uh, high sugar intake right after antibiotics and, you know, high starchy foods or pastries and cookies, even though it's so satiating to eat a slice of pizza and other things after going through a surgery or taking antibiotics, it's actually the critical window to want to be the healthiest for the next two weeks that you possibly can with the diet. 
Now, probiotics can help you with that. Probiotics can also help keep those bad organisms in lower concentrations because they're going to come in and take up the nutrients as well and outcompete. And that's a really good way to kind of, you know, be ready right after antibiotics. Some people do take it with the antibiotics just so it's already starting to flush into the system and your body can get used to it. So there's that sort of perspective of things. So some people do take it with antibiotics, but you could ask your doctor about when and where to take it. But definitely after you've completed your course, taking your probiotics along with that modified diet is going to be a really healthy way to get your gut back. But our position, of course, is going to be that you need that baseline and you want to build a precision approach to what probiotics you take after antibiotic. Otherwise, you may actually be hurting yourself from recovering your gut microbiome. What about using food? So, you know, different bacteria are going to consume different things. Let's say I normally have a, you know, a bad diet, high sugar, tons of meat, uh, whatever. And I switch, you know, I'm going to go on antibiotics and I decide, all right, while I'm antibiotics, I'm going to be keto. I'm going to be vegetarian or whatever it is, because I don't want to give the bacteria that let's say would feed on sugar and maybe bad for me, um, any, any chance for a foothold throughout this process, because I don't have the good guys protecting me. So I'm going to alter my diet throughout the course of antibiotics and then slowly transition back, let's say, will that protect me? Is that an idea? So I was at a event with Dr. Jack Gilbert. He's the co-founder of the American Gut Project, and he's now driving a $14 million project as a follow-up on precision nutrition and how to mod- modify the gut through you know, food and looking at metagenomics similar to how we do our test as well using metagenomics. And he categorized that diet that you described, high saturated fat, high sugars, as the standard American diet, the SAD diet. And so the SAD diet has all these negative effects to our gut microbiome. It stimulates the growth of organisms that are associated with IBS. It stimulates the growth of organisms associated with gut inflammation, including C. difficile. And so we want to get away from that type of diet. And so he's created partners and educational systems for people to understand better diet options. We've incorporated a lot of information and educational content on our mobile app called Flore. You can download the mobile app and read up on diet and nutrition in ways to to manage the gut microbiome. So we absolutely see it as a way to manage the gut microbiome. And so if you did keep your body and your microbiome on a healthy diet, there could be a way that you could not have to take, you know, these supplements and, and probiotics as well. But I think knowing what your baseline is, is, is really the critical part there. And as opposed to going on a diet without having that understanding, you're not going to know what the macronutrient composition of the diet should be without first kind of taking a look because it is so, so personalized based off of the microbiome. And so we've seen good benefits on things like keto. I think that makes a lot of sense because you're not keeping a lot of high sugar intake when you're on the keto diet. Perhaps if you're going on like a, a fasting diet, you are sort of starving out the high sugar craving organisms and your body's going to have to go into this sort of ketosis or your body's going to have to trigger the fat cells to release sugars and other things to digest. So there can be some benefits of that, but you still want to make sure that your nutrition under medical guidance when you're taking antibiotics especially is monitored if you do any of those types of diets. And if you're kind of DIYing it, we think, you know, doing gut testing is a great way to DIY it just to see if you're not, you know, misshaping your microbiome while you're, while you're on some of these more complex diets like keto. Yeah, I was on a ketogenic diet for about a year 
and I had my microbiome looked at before and after. I may get this wrong, but Permicutes and Bifidobacteria, they, you know, I, I think I was dominant in, in Permicutes, and after a year, it switched. So let's say it was a 60% Permicutes, a 30% Bifidobacter, and the numbers switched. So the diet did have a long, you know, it took a while, but then again, I didn't test, you know, after one month. But, um, you know, I lost like 40 pounds, et cetera, a lot of great, great effects. But again, also microbiome changed pretty dramatically. Yeah, that's great. I mean, if, you, if you're able to create a diet intervention that can change the composition, you know, and it makes you feel better, you're on the right track. You know, what what we've observed when you look at Firmicutes, that's really a phylum level view of the microbiome. It's a really high level view of the microbiome. There are good Firmicutes that are in the gut microbiome. Fecali bacterium prisonutsi is one of them. There are good Firmicutes that are in the gut microbiome. And so knowing the species level is super important is what we found in the last three years or so of scientific literature and as well as at Flore. That species level resolution helps us understand even within these bigger categories of Firmicutes, the bacteriides or bifidobacterium, what are the species? Is it bifidobacteria longum? Is it infantis? Is it you know, the fake LA bacterium prasnutsi, is it a rosburia, is it a bacteriides, you know, cellulolyticus, which is a positive strain, is it bacteriides fragilis, which is sort of a negative strain associated with IBS. So that that sort of crystal clear picture of what's going on in the gut microbiome now will help us take it even a step further. And it's great to hear that you lost 40 pounds. That's amazing. Great job, Richard. Like, uh, hats you. off to you. That is not easy to do. And we hope you're keeping off and that you're still staying healthy. Yeah, actually, it wasn't nearly as hard as you think, because the reason why I did it is that I, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. So it was actually beneficial to have a gun to the head it made it a lot easier to do it for a long time. Probably like 30, 35 pounds of it off. It was actually a good thing when it seemed like a bad thing. So we work with Dr. William Lee, who published this book, Eat to Beat Disease or Eat to Beat Your Diet. And his whole philosophy is around this sort of concept of, especially in cancer, you know, where there is, is this sort of growth, the vascular growth happening to feed these cancer cells. If we can get ourselves onto a diet that is not going to feed the growth or the neoplastic proliferation of these cancer cells inside of our body, we can slow it down through antioxidant production or, you know, limit the reactive oxygen species being, you know, created through the foods and diet that we're ingesting, then we can actually starve out the, the growth of these nodes of cells that are rapidly proliferating inside of our bodies. I think his book is fascinating. We're very supportive of him and he's supportive of us and he's sent us several clinical cases as well. So I think you're on to the right thing there with, with the diet. And if that's the motivator it takes, then you know that's what it is. And congrats to you for doing that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It took, I don't know, probably about three weeks where you know, I felt incredibly hungry, like ravenous, even though I was eating tons of stuff. So it took about three weeks. And then after that, I wasn't really tempted by sugar or you know other things like that. And probably the greatest thing, I guess, was at Thanksgiving. Everyone was eating around me and so was I. And you know, dessert, they were all eating dessert. And I was like, nope, I'm okay. And I was able to sit there and it didn't bother me at all. And I just had more turkey and things like that. And you know, the spell had been broken of the sugar. And when I had tried sugary things, I was like, wow, they were like unbelievably sugary. It, it like curdled my blood to taste because I wasn't used to it anymore. But at first it was, it was hard, you know, and I guess that's probably driven by the bacteria in you signaling, hey, we need more of this, we need more of this, we're dying, you know, give us more of the sugar and the things we want. And 
I would guess that's probably the reason for, you know, for cravings and other symptomology when you're changing diet. So there's definitely a gut brain access that we, that's been uncovered in the last three to four years here in the science. Right now we're trying to understand, okay, well, there's serotonin release and trigger in the GI system. Over 90% of our serotonin produced in the body is released in the GI system. Is that the driver for signaling through either the vagus nerve or their afferent nerve system up into the brain? And is that then in transient, you know, creating conversion of synaptic activation in the brain cells to then release dopamine, serotonin, and other positive brain mood molecules up in the brain? And does that help solve some of these issues that we're having? Or is this, is this gut brain access, you know, something different on this feedback loop that's happening? And is it actually localized to the GI system? You know, those are some of the things that we're excited to uncover. But but even GLP-1 and some of the stuff that's being talked about with Ozempic and weight loss and triggering these different receptors of the gut or receptors of the human body and how that can triggering that cascade of signal triggering can influence our our satiation or wanting to eat. I think there's a lot of mechanisms that are still being figured out on that front. I've done the same when I went on the slow carb diet, you know, you're limiting jet you're limiting carbohydrates too, not just sugars, but you can eat carbohydrates from vegetables and fiber and legumes and things like that perhaps, but you don't want to eat carbohydrates from like bread and, you know, sort of fast sugars, right? Something that is going to quickly break down and be stored as glucose into the body or create higher insulin spikes in the body. So you want to look at things that are creating insulin spikes and limit those carbohydrates essentially while you're on the diet. And sure enough, after, you know, sort of a break-in period, the diet has to break me in a little bit. After about two weeks, I begin to not crave sugar. And it was just fascinating to me how I became, you know, sort of in the same vein as you a little bit turned off by sugar and could could build that competence to say, no, I'm okay not having that cookie or that cake or whatever it is. But then the minute I go back and do eat a, a bowl, you know, a couple cookies in a couple days or, or over a week, you know, now you bring that back. Now you invite that signaling pathway back. Uh, and it is changing the gut microbiome probably to a degree. How much we don't know is influenced by the gut microbiome, but it's certainly an interesting thing when you move between diets and how you can become confident to restrict sugar. I guess it's like that movie, if you build it, they will come. Certain <laughs> foods, they will come if you, you know, whatever you do with your body, yeah, certain bacteria will show up. Like, like in mother's milk, you know, oligosaccharides. And what I've learned, they're not digestible by the baby. But what they do is they encourage the right bacteria for the baby to take up residence inside the gut and eat those oligosaccharides. And that seeds, you know, the baby's gut in the proper way for proper development. Yeah. So the bifidobacterium infantis is generally the strain that can break down HMOs and ferment HMOs further. And that help can help acidify the gut and reduce the pH in the gut, which will help reduce the growth of Klebsiella pneumonia, E. coli, and some of these other microbes that are going to grow at a higher pH. So you can kind of change the environment so that it's no longer favorable for the bad microbes to grow, but more favorable for the good microbes to grow. And that's all done through these type of prebiotics like oligosaccharides. And we're starting to see more data come out on usage of those beyond infants and usage in adults and how adults can take, you know, synthetic or derived HMOs to benefit the gut bacteria of our guts. We ourselves have HMOs in our inventory. And when 
we see the right condition or the right reason, we will use that prebiotic ingredient to benefit the gut microbiome. And we haven't gotten into it yet. That was the one main thing. It's so fascinating what we're talking about already. Now it's to intermittent fasting. So I guess one would think normally if you're intermittent fasting, let's say it's a water-only fast for, I don't know, three days, how are the bacteria in your body supposed to live? You know, I would guess your body produces, again, more ketones. There's a radical decrease in sugar. You know, the composition of what's there dramatically changes. I would guess there's not nothing there. There's gluconeogenesis and things going on. But why wouldn't the entire microbiome just croak if someone's on an extended fast? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, there's already a nutrient supply that is inside of our intestinal tract. And so it can sort of feed off of residual remaining nutrients that are there. But of course, if you're going into a long-term fast, now you're going to trigger, you know, your fat cells to release sugars and energy stores into the body. And now your body is going to begin to feed on those molecules, sustain itself. Now, three days might be a, a long period of time and perhaps maybe more than some of the standard ways of going about intermittent fasting. It might be more to, you know, intermittent fast in 14 hour waves or 16 hour or something like that. But if you do that type of intermittent fasting does allow the time needed for healthy microbes like Acromantia mucinophilia, which has been popular of late for an energy producing microbe that can grow in that type of environment because it's not being outcompeted by organisms that are feeding on the quick sugars anymore. And so acromantia needs a little bit longer doubling time. It can't double if something else is out quadruple doubling it every time. And so if you can inhibit the things that are eating that all that sugar that people are ingesting in their diets and then provide the window of opportunity to actually grow these long-term beneficial microbes or these what they call strict anaerobes of the gut, that can actually be quite healthy. And so that's where we say medical guidance is always important so that you're not starving yourself or your body, but at least you can monitor things like the gut microbiome when you're on diet like this. If you look at it through that lens, what are the fastest doublers? You know, so I'm sure this is being, I would hope this is being studied, but when you're on an intermittent fast, you know, 12 hours into it, 14 hours into it, which is not a ton of time, the fastest doublers, are they being preferentially starved to death, you know, most rapidly? Because again, they're the most ravenous for for food consistently. Which ones will tend to survive longer? Which ones will die the quickest? Yeah, I mean, E. coli is, is probably the one that is the most common to know that it's one of the fastest growing gut microbes, you know, E. coli is involved in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's involved in enterohemorrhagenic toxicity in the gut. It can it can be healthy and be producing healthy vitamins and other metabolites, but there are strains of E. coli that are that are not good. And if you're not feeling well, generally E. coli or coliforms are are generally thought to be the culprit and a lot of antibiotics target E. coli. So that doubles every 20 minutes. And so if you can, you know, starve E. coli, you know, over a period of time, that will allow time for other things to grow because there's only so much real estate. And so if you're E. coli, we've seen relative abundances of E. coli at 60% of the gut microbiome, leaving only 40% for the other functions that you need. And if one organism is taking up all that real estate, what they call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, then you really are in a functioning in a subpar level with your microbiota. And so knocking that E. coli down is going to become critically important. Important, you know, bringing it down to two to three percent relative abundance is a healthy range to kind of be operating in and allowing the other beneficial or butyrate producing organisms of the gut to grow. Yeah, I'm sure you know of Walter Longo. He has uh, the fasting mimicking diet. I don't know if this question is being asked. What would be a good probiotic supplementation routine for when you're doing intermittent fasting? Is there anything that could help you through the fast? 
you know, in terms yeah, of probiotics, prebiotics, et cetera, but be fasting mimicking so you still get the desired effects. Yeah, we view that with our custom prebiotics where you can begin to feed the fibers or the oligosaccharides or even some resistant starches, these molecules that don't have a high caloric value to them and don't trigger you out of intermittent fasting or ketosis. And But they do serve as a fermentation source for things like acromantia or other healthy gut microbes. And so if you are on that type of diet, I think, you know, working with one of our clinicians or letting us know that you're planning that type of diet, then we would select if we would select for the ingredients that would benefit the strict anaerobes of the gut while you're on that type of diet, kind of boost them up and be a food source while you're starving out the other bad organisms of the gut. Do you think, I would guess in the future, the, you know, the field of dietetics or dietitians, the real good ones should also be trained and, you know, how to modulate the microbiome. That Imagine going to someone like that, you know, a weight loss practitioner or something, and they incorporate, again, not diet just to lose weight, but diet from a microbiome perspective and what will change it over or help you lose the weight or help you do fasting when it's hard for you to do. I'm sure for many people, they think, oh my God, 16-hour fast or 24-hour fast, how could I do that? I'm going to feel horrible. So again, I would guess in the future that this position can be made far better by incorporating you know, knowledge of the microbiome. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a lot of interest from nutritionists. In fact, one of our key advisors is Jordan Mazur, registered dietitian and the director of nutrition at the San Francisco 49ers football team. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense because he's looking at it from a view of, I need to understand the microbiome with Flore and share how we view performance nutrition after somebody takes an antibiotic, for instance, or has an injury, or how do they recover faster, or uh, how do we optimize for people that are already eating so healthy? I mean, we've got the, they've got their players on such regimented diets, but they're not always feeling the best, and they might have a bloating feeling or something like that. And that's going to lead into subpar performance or just, you know, feeling the circadian rhythms off a little bit. And so if we can you know, bring all this together with nutrition and the microbiome and just, you know, limiting sort of the bad feelings of the microbiome, the bloat, the diarrhea, the constipation, those symptoms and bring them into a healthy state, then you can be in a lot better position to perform. And we really appreciate his guidance and we love engaging with nutritionists and helping them with their practices as well. Would that be a potential market for Flore is to become you know, to marry a knowledge of the microbiome with, uh, again, dietetics, antibiotic use, with, again, sports performance, with intermittent fasting, with, with all these things. It seems like a whole big area, I guess, microbiome counseling, maybe you call it, I don't know what, or microbiome-assisted uh, dietetics. Yeah, I saw something like this happen at Illumina while I was there, where genetic counselors began to interpret for the human genome. I think it wouldn't be too far to think that registered dietitians could do something similar for us in the future as they grow their profession and knowledge base and they begin to work with more integrative health centers. We're seeing a lot more adoption through integrative wellness where there is a doctor that is guiding sort of holistic view of the microbiome and then also of the other parts of the body 
body, their symptoms, and maybe their regular blood work. And then part of that team is going to be that diet part, which, you know, we know today that in medical school, there's not a big section dedicated to diet and the microbiome. We'd love to see that someday. But there's a whole professional group out there of registered dietitians that are immensely knowledgeable about this. And they spend, you know, years studying it just from a book standpoint and years practicing it in internships and so forth. And so we think they're a good source of information and great people to partner with inside of integrative medicine clinics and and offerings. And in the future, you know, it won't be too far away from us to get that kind of guidance. Right now, what we're trying to do is offer kind of a one-click solution to that because not everyone's going to have access to integrative health doctors and functional medicine doctors and registered dietitian. Now, if, if you play for the 49ers and they're playing quite well right now, maybe you do, you have one on staff and you can go chat with them and he sits literally in their cafeteria in his office, which is amazing. But, you know, the other average person doesn't have that type of access all the time. And that's why we're providing solutions on the consumer side and also on the clinical side and supporting both sides as this field begins to grow. Excellent. Any last comments on, again, intermittent fasting in the microbiome? Do you know if there's any studies? I've heard that, you know, during Ramadan, you know, many Muslims were studied to see the changes in their microbiome, but that's a black fast, meaning no water, from what I understand. And it's 12 hours, approximately. Has anyone done the studies on people doing, you know, one, two, three, four day fast, fasting, mimicking diet, you know, various protocols? Yeah, I think one of the challenges, all the challenge of science is studies have been done, yes, but the placebo controlled study is always the hard part, right? Does that study have a placebo control arm? Was it clinically regulated? And today we don't have those levels of study, but we do have some studies to begin to have an idea that there is something happening during fasting that is changing the gut microbiota. But I think more work is needed to do it. And I think medical supervision is definitely important. If you're a DIY person, then I think, you know, gut testing and there's lots of gut testing solutions out there that you can choose from. We're one of them. I think that's really important. We do the longitudinal tracking for individuals as well. So if you take, you know, a gut test every two months while you're on a particular diet, you're going to have the feedback of what organisms of the gut are actually increasing and which ones are decreasing so that you can see firsthand what it's doing to your body and these biomarkers of the gut, the microbiome, and what it may have, what long-term impact that may have if you stay on that type of diet. But we're seeing more and more data come out every day on this topic, especially as it relates to the microbiome. And so we're excited and enthused to be in that mix and having that discussion, supporting people's health and diet choices and helping them generally feel better and healthier. Okay, well, very good. So, Sonny, what's the best way for people to learn more about Flory? Go to the website, products available on Amazon, or you know, what's the best approach path for people to start learning about Flory and your company and your your ideas? Where can they go? Yeah, I think Flory.com has a great resource of blogs. So you can go to Flory.com, F-L-O-R-E.com. If you're looking to engage your practitioner or your doctor, or you're doing something more medically needed, then you would go to floraclinical.com. We have a form there that you can fill out either as a practitioner or you can refer your practitioner if you feel like this would be a great solution and you want your doctor to know about it. And then we'll take it from there. We'll follow up and and talk to your doctor and let them know that you referred us and, and we can provide all the education to them that they may need to feel comfortable. That's great. Well, very good. Sonny, thanks so much for coming back and uh, keep up the great work. And I hope to speak to you again in the next number of months and see what new things you're working on. So thank you.
Yeah, you're welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for having me and great job with um, all the diet interventions that you've done to actually help in a disease context, which is amazing. So I wish you. you all the best and I wish you good gut health in this new year. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.